Welcome to Making Art Work, produced by the Arts Administration Program at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York. I'm Travis Newton, your host and director of the program. Today's guest is Joanne Folletta, one of the world's most respected conductors. Hailed by the New York Times as one of the finest conductors of her generation, she currently serves as music director of two American orchestras, the Buffalo Philharmonic and the Virginia Symphony, as well as conducting posts in Ireland and as principal guest conductor of the Brevard Music Festival. Her recordings are countless and varied and include two Grammy Awards. Beyond her work on the podium, she's also become something of a musical ambassador, lending support to other orchestras in need, including consulting and serving as artistic advisor with the newly formed Hawaii Symphony Orchestra, as well as integrating herself into the fabric of the communities in which she works. During her tenure at the Buffalo Philharmonic, the orchestra has risen to new heights, both artistically and financially. Artistic excellence, including many recordings under the Noxos label, performances at Carnegie Hall, and ASCAP awards for adventurous programming have been supported by strong financial underpinning, including record number of subscriptions, 25% increase in the orchestra's budget, and a successful $34 million endowment campaign. Joanne Folletta, welcome to Lemoyne College and to Making Art Work. Thank you, Travis. Glad to be here. So in Buffalo, since, since that's where you are now and you've been there for a while, I wanted to ask you how closely intertwined are the financial and the artistic sides of the operation? They really, they are very closely intertwined. I mean, they, they, one makes the other possible. So um, rather than that be limiting, though, I think it's very, it's very interesting for me to, to be aware of all of that uh, because it, it guides us in terms of creative projects, in terms of creative thinking, in terms of how to make things work, um, you know, and, and stay healthy. So uh, yes, I mean it's it, they're both the two halves of a coin, and uh, you can't ignore one. And on, on the other hand, I mean the executive director, who's responsible for, let's say, the financial health of the organization, also cannot operate without being intrinsically and happily involved with the artistic product of why are we doing this, and where is our money best put and best spent for the artistic development of the orchestra and and for the community. So it's interesting that you should say that because um, I think some organizations probably see, you know, this is your job, this is my job, I'm the artistic director, I'm the executive director, and we don't always intersect. So what you're saying, it sounds like, is that there's a lot of collaboration between the two? Oh, absolutely, and that's the only way it works. I mean, in the worst case, of course, some people feel it as a kind of... uh, enmity where the artistic director is pushing for something and the executive director is pushing back no or or vice versa and that's certainly not going to work i mean in the kind of fragile fragile economy that we're dealing with and our arts world being challenged if both the executive director and the music director are not on the same page it just will not work so it's exciting this way i mean uh, sometimes i've had my executive director come up with ideas that i thought i would never have dared mention because i thought they'd be too expensive but he'd found a way to to focus on that and maybe spend a little less on something else that was you know not so obvious or so needed so uh, if if you can develop that kind of relationship that makes for a healthy organization. So um, how many executive directors have there been at Buffalo since you've been there as music director? Really just two. I started with Larry Ribbits, who was wonderful, and uh, now I'm working with a person that I had worked with before, and I think he's one of the most brilliant most brilliant leaders in the orchestra business, and that's Dan Hart, Daniel Hart, 
we worked together in Virginia Symphony, and then he went on to a couple of other things, and now he's in Buffalo, and he himself is an ex, or still plays bass, a bass player, and a tremendous music lover. But, you know, keeps an eye on on, uh, on the numbers all the time, and and it's because of him and his, his willingness to be, to be um, part of this, this artistic adventure that we've been able to make a number of recordings. We've been able to go to Carnegie Hall. We've uh, embarked on a couple of tours to Florida. So all of this is, um, I think, goes back to, again, a good relationship between uh, the leadership of the organization. Great. So speaking of leadership, <laughs> there have been tremendous changes and challenges in the orchestra business over the past, say, five years. Would you agree? Yes, so, yeah, so even things like, you know, orchestras collapsing, including the orchestra here in Syracuse, um, bankruptcy of huge institutions that we would never thought could have uh, gone into bankruptcy, including Philadelphia Orchestra. Um, right now, we're in the middle of a really prolonged work stoppage in Minnesota and St. Paul. So um, at Buffalo, it's a different story, right? Uh, you've balanced the budget for seven out of the past eight years. And last season, you heard some statistics earlier, attendance went up, ticket sales went up, subscription sales went up, and the number of subscribers went up. In a, at a time when most orchestras are seeing subscriptions decrease and more people buying single tickets and waiting till the last minute in Buffalo, so what's the secret for making all this happen? You know, I think it, it, it'll sound pretty simple, but I think what we realized is that rather than focusing on the symphony world at large, which we sort of grew up thinking, okay, we had to pattern ourselves after the largest organizations. We had to, you know, grow and think like Philadelphia, Chicago, or New York. We concentrated on our region and on Buffalo. Mm -hmm. How could we be the, the finest orchestra possible in the region? How could we be really relevant to the people there? And that resulted in collaborations. It resulted in projects. It resulted in, in a kind of uh, relationship with community that then was reciprocated and has helped us stay strong. But we had to find our own solutions and we had to find them in our city. We, we couldn't pattern ourselves after anyone else. Uh, and it seems to me that every orchestra needs to, to know that, that they are unique and their community is, is unique. Um, their answers to their problems are going to be there, not looking at what what uh, Minnesota did or what Philadelphia did. Or What's what the did. new model? Right, right, you have to find your own your own situation, and that's really worked. Buffalo is a unique place, as is Syracuse, and uh, the answers are there, but um, it does take a lot of hard work. Mm -hmm. So could you talk about some specifics of, of different initiatives, different projects that you've started in Buffalo that's, that have really sort of ingrained the orchestra into the community there? Well, we started with a series of collaborations with almost every organization, and not necessarily arts organizations. For everything from the art museum to the science museum uh, to the uh, school system, um, anything we could to forge relationships uh, in the community with uh, historical organizations, with um, institutions that were treasured in Buffalo. And the city responded because um, Buffalo cares deeply about what happens in its city. It's, as you know, a city that has struggled with tremendous economic turmoil and uh, um, and self-perception, too, perhaps. So the idea that the Buffalo Philharmonic was representing Buffalo in the truest way meant a great deal to the community. So those collaborations, those projects together, uh, 
playing music by young Buffalo composers, something as simple as that, finding ways to, to create CDs that were relevant to the Buffalo community. One of my, my favorite CDs that we've done, of, and we've done a lot, ha was a celebration of our Polish community. We have a very large, strong Polish community that happens to be uh, a great music-loving community mm -hmm. as well. And we did a CD highlighting four Polish composers, and it was extremely well-received. I mean, those kinds of things where you are... You're looking inward, you're looking at your city, you're looking at your region and figuring out how can we help. Uh, and that bears fruit nationally too. So um, being focused on Buffalo and on excellence for Buffalo has really helped us. Mm -hmm. So being that you're also concurrently uh, music director of the Virginia Symphony, Virginia Symphony in the past hasn't had as much, shall we say, financial success as Buffalo it's all. It's also a different orchestra, right? right. It's smaller budget. It's in a different kind of ge geographical location. Right. Do you think geography has something to do with with Virginia's um, success and sort of challenges over the years? Absolutely. I mean, Buffalo, for instance, is is a city that uh, in the last century, I mean, was well, a hundred years ago, was one of the great cities in the country in the world, and it has a kind of legacy of uh, philanthropy and a legacy of being a cutting-edge arts organization with such music directors as Lucas Foss and Michael Tilson Thomas. So mm -hmm. it has that as an advantage. Virginia has an advantage in that uh, southeastern Virginia, our, our home is really Norfolk, but we serve seven or eight different cities in the southeastern part of the state. Um, that uh, that That is a fast-growing, vibrant area filled with young people. Uh, made stable in many ways by the military presence, by the presence of the Navy, sure. um, that's very, it's a great help. We actually play in five different halls, uh, wow. all of our concerts, and we have an enormous range of audience in, in these many cities that we play in. That's uh, a great positive for us. The, um, the difficulties we face there are the fact that it is a young population. It's a transient population in many ways because of the Navy. And it doesn't have a built-in history of philanthropy as some cities do, some older cities, I mean, that have had arts for a longer time. So so that's been our challenge there, but uh, but it also is an orchestra that's very responsive to its community. Mm -hmm. So um, moving back to Buffalo a little bit, you've done quite a few recordings with that orchestra on the Noxus label. How did you initiate that relationship with Noxus and... Um, and then as a second part of that question, what do you see as the future of the music industry when it comes to classical music? Well, the first part is probably easier, but, but uh, and it was a wonderful, wonderful situation. Klaus Heyman, who was the, the visionary president of Noxos, uh, contacted me because he was looking for an American orchestra. He had been recording with a lot of different orchestras all over the world, and he, when I got the position in Buffalo, he was interested in forging a relationship, and we did. And what has been fantastic about the relationship with Noxus is that they've encouraged us to find repertoire that's not Beethoven symphonies and Mozart symphonies. And he has all of that. You know, he was looking for less known repertoire, and that didn't necessarily mean contemporary. Mm -hmm. uh, didn't mean only American. And we've done things that I'm very proud of a disc we did of Joseph Sook. We've also we won two Grammys for a disc by John Corigliano. So we he's and he's encouraged us to look all over the repertoire, from Doshnani to, uh, to uh, Jack Gallagher, to all different kinds of, of uh, repertoire. And the result of it has been not only in, in our discovering this wonderful music and, and having it played all over the world, 
but in the orchestra getting stronger. Mm -hmm. Because in making recordings and having the, those sessions, and they're pretty intense, as you know, yeah. um, limited amount of time, it has to be perfect, it's a kind of document of who you are right now as an orchestra, uh, people began to focus in different ways. They began to think like they were recording all the time. They were thinking of intonation, they were thinking of ensemble. They knew where the tough spots were. They'd worked them out in advance. They knew how to focus. They knew how to sort of marshal their strength and stay, save their strength. And in doing that, having to do that for recordings, they became so much more aware of everything they did in concerts and rehearsals because they kept their ears wide open. So I always say that I think for us, the, 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 lot of, the amount of recording we've, which we've done has helped us develop greatly as an orchestra. And what do you see, you know, in terms of obviously we've gone from vinyl to CDs to digital and, you know, there's this whole, you know, streaming and all of this that's going on in the music industry. How do you see, what do you see as the next sort of step and is there a place for classical music in terms of recordings in the future? Oh, definitely, definitely. Now, I maybe long term in the future, they will not be issued on CDs. It'll right. be all digital. So people will be able to to download one track of a CD that, that we have and that probably is, is the future. But the, the appetite for repertoire and the interest in unusual repertoire is growing and growing. And uh, um, I think that will always be there. It's just going to be probably served in a different way. Mm -hmm. Although, uh, you know, according to Mr. Heyman, there, there is a significant part of the population, music-loving population, who still loves having a CD. A physical, a physical artifact. CD. Right. Yeah, with a beautiful cover and program notes inside. And mm -hmm. so, so, you know, we'll have that for a while longer, I hope. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, so you talked a little bit about the process of recording. What is it like? I mean, can you talk to our, audi our audience a little bit about the process and sort of the pressure in terms of time and resources that you're under when you're making a recording of a full orchestra? Oh, it's amazing because um, we we operate with strict AF of M recording rules, which means that uh, we have to give the musicians considerable break time because of the pressure. I mean, and they need that. The pressure of making a recording is, is really daunting. So we have to, every, every second is precious to us, every single second. So when we go into the studio, we have to be totally prepared. We have to know where the difficulties lie and how to solve them. Uh, and, and more and more, we are able to do that. Now, we almost always perform the pieces in concert. But performing is different than recording. You know, in performing, uh, if there's a little bit of a bubble somewhere, you just go right through it, and it doesn't matter. I mean, right. The audience just comes right along with you. In recording, uh, you just listen in a different way. So, so we have actually very little time to get that maybe 65, 70 minutes of music on CD in a way that, uh, that we're happy with. And and the other part of that that I'm wondering is when you're when you're doing the recording and you're in the middle of it, um, something goes wrong and you run out of time. What do you do? Yeah, I we so far we haven't we haven't had to do that. I, mean, I remember our very very first CD, the very first CD we ever made. It was just a kind of a, a first you know fledgling project. We did mm -hmm. a, a holiday CD with music that reflected the Christmas season. And we fully intended to have uh, 70 minutes of music, and we wound up with 47 minutes of music. That's all we could do. And we put it on a CD, and it's a CD that I still treasure. But mm -hmm. but it taught us a lot about how to focus, that, that every single moment can't be wasted. I mean, because you have once the time is over, it's over. And it's very expensive making a recording. Yeah. 
So uh, we've learned a lot. Do you feel like your efficiency that you've developed doing these recordings has sort of translated to your work on the podium with you know guest conducting and going into a town where you don't know the orchestra and you're you have limited time definitely because you have to keep your ears wide open all the time i mean you can't you can't let things get by you i mean as you're conducting i, I find now that i'm constantly registering things as i'm conducting that i should go over i must go back and fix this and fix that and i'm sort of cataloging in my mind things that that i know need a little work and that's very helpful and i think a lot of that comes from recording because you you have to catch those things or else you've got to live with a CD where you just wish you had two more minutes to fix that one chord that was out of tune or, you know, one little blip in the trumpet. And, uh, you know, with of course you have an engineer. We have a wonderful engineer from London who comes uh, to be with us, Tim Handley. Oh, I, he, not, I know you know Tim. Tim. Yeah. You know Tim. Mm-hmm. And he's done uh, a great job for us. He knows the orchestra really well now. Yeah, he's and, great. Yeah, he's great. Good to work with. So, and it's that's what it's all about is finding people that you enjoy working with. And exactly. That usually results in a good product, so that's great. Um, In terms of the business side of the orchestra, we all know that for every orchestra in the country, ticket sales only take care of a certain portion of the budget, of the revenue that you need every year. So in terms of the other part, which is fundraising, no asking corporations and individuals and foundations for money, how involved are you in that process as music director? Do you get involved in those conversations? Very involved. And, you know, probably a music director 25 years ago or 50 years ago would, would never have even imagined being involved. But, but yes, I am involved. And, and uh, in a way, it's, it's, a, it's a very positive thing for me because um, while I never really have to ask for money specifically, I do have to talk about projects with, with potential donors, uh, that the status of the orchestra, the health of the orchestra, why we're doing what we're doing, why we think this is a very valid and important project for us or situation for us. And it's great for me to verbalize that. And it's also wonderful for a potential sponsor or donor who might not be a musician to hear about the project from a musician who's deeply invested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we both gain a great deal. And I'm able to talk to them uh, and they're uh, on their on their business level, they're able to maybe have a glimpse into an artistic world that they can really be a very, very valuable part of. That's fantastic. So I think this is going to wrap up uh, part one of the interview. Do you mind sticking around a little bit for another segment? No, that's fine. Great. That's Thank fine. you. Making Art Work is produced by the Arts Administration Program at LeMoyne College in Syracuse, New York with support provided by the Department of Communication and Film Studies and WLMU Radio. Our theme song was written by Lemoyne College music faculty member Edward Rahowski and performed by the Bang on a Can All-Stars. <laughs>